You guys are awesome. My voice uh, just kind of failed me yesterday. I did everything I could, could to get it ready. And uh, this morning, it's kind of, kind of there a little bit better. But uh, I took some meds this morning. I don't know if you can over, overdose on homeovox. Can somebody please Google and just find out? And if I pass out, can somebody take me to the hospital? Because I've had like 20 this morning. Um, but I'm excited to share with you, and I, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to be able to share. Um, I was away for a little while and didn't get to, uh, you know, just share what I'm passionate about, talk what I'm passionate about, be with the people I'm passionate about. And so I love being able to, uh, to do that this morning. And I want to encourage you with a simple word entitled, Why Jesus Isn't Religious. Why Jesus Isn't Religious. How many of you are glad that it's nearly Christmas? Some of you, some of you are not. Some of you had your Christmas decorations up far too early. I want to remind you that every time somebody puts up their Christmas decorations in November, Santa shoots an elf, okay? So you are directly responsible for the death of some elves if you did that. But it's all, it's all good now. You can go home and you can put them up and, um, and you can hang out and, uh, and you can put up a Christmas tree. Some people are like, can we put up Christmas trees? Because it actually like comes from like a pagan thing and there was like a root thing and I was like, just put up the tree. You're fine. Jesus loves you. You're fine. You're good. You can go ahead and put it up. And, uh, and we're going to have a great Christmas together. We're looking forward to our Christmas service. And, uh, and we just love celebrating. We're a church that loves to have fun. We believe church is a place that should be enjoyed and not endured. And that church should be life-giving. It should be every, every community needs a life-giving church. People say, what is a life-giving church? And we tell them, if you've ever been in a life-sucking church, you'll know the difference, all right? If you walk out and you feel less excited about your future and, more, and, and less encouraged and, and less passionate and, and less sure of your relationship with Jesus, um, then you've probably had some of the life sucked out, of, uh, sucked out of you. And what sucks the life out of us, can I tell you? You might have guessed already, but it's religion. It's rules. It's regulations. It's formulas. It's I have to do this in order to get that. It's pressure. It's condemnation. It's rejection. It's... It's feeling as if you don't matter. And whenever we encounter these in life, and unfortunately the entire religious philosophy and mindset robs us of our joy and our confidence. Whereas what the scriptures say that Jesus did for us is completely different from religion because whereas religion is about us trying to make ourselves good enough to have a relationship with God, we know there's a gap, we know there's a void, and we're working and we're sacrificing and we're giving and we're doing everything we can to be reconnected with him. The gospel says that Jesus came and did it for us. So where, where religion says do, the gospel, which is just a fancy word for the good news of what Jesus has done, it says done. Religion says do, Jesus says done. And Jesus isn't religious. He often upset religious people. His harshest criticism was reserved for those that were religious and that missed the point. They missed the point of what church is about. They missed the point about what the gospel is about. Um, I had uh, like a little gnat go into my drink this week. I was sitting out on the porch and had a gnat go into my, uh, into my drink. And I take these opportunities as preaching moments. Whenever something like that reminds me of Scripture, I'm like, I'm going to preach right now. And unfortunately for Lee, most of the time it's her because she's with me. So I'm like, I actually prep her. I'm like, hey, Lee, I'm going to share something with you now. Are you ready? And she's like, I guess so. You know, and, and I was like, you know why Jesus said to the Pharisees who were the most religious people of the day? He said to them, you're guilty because you strain the gnat and swallow the camel hole. And you know, a lot of people read stuff like that in scriptures and they're like, Jesus had a couple of homeovoxes himself this morning because he's not talking sense. 
and it sounds so strange, but actually what the Pharisees did, both, the gnat, both gnats and camels were unclean animals under the law, and you couldn't eat them under the law. And so they were so particular about being exactly right with Jesus and doing everything they're supposed to be doing and, and not breaking the law and, and being so holy and so righteous and so everything that they would, when they drank wine, um, there would often be, be gnats that would fall into the wine and they would sip the wine through their teeth, using their teeth as a sieve to make sure that they didn't accidentally eat something that was unclean. And this is the lengths they went to in order to try and be righteous. So one thing you didn't want to do is have friendly banter with a Pharisee while he was having dinner and drinking some wine, right? Because you'd just be like gnats everywhere. Like, dude, you got like, it's just everywhere. Um, and then he says, but you do that. You're so particular. You're so pedantic. You look at all the little things. But then you swallow camels whole. And Jesus was using hyperbole there to express something is that they miss the point of the important things like loving people. So they'll, they'll, they'll strain gnats out in their teeth, but then they don't love people. They don't care about people. They're not humble. They don't rely on God. So, you know, you know, and, and, and what Jesus was saying is like, all your little things means nothing if you've missed the big things. And that's why I believe Jesus wasn't religious, isn't religious, and is not calling us to be religious because he doesn't want us to focus on little things to be religiously right without you know, taking the big things and believing in them and standing on them, the, 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 the foundational things and beliefs of our faith. And so uh, Jesus isn't religious. Um, my boys wake up really early in the morning. Any parents here this morning that were up before five? Can we like, can we like start a support group? Can we all pray for each other? Like when you wake up, just be like, God, I'm praying for Adrian right now because I know he was up, he's up at this time as well. Um, but uh, my boys wake up really early. Yesterday, Saturday morning, thinking we could sleep in a little bit, Jude comes in with his pajamas and flip-flops at 5 a.m. He's like, Dad, can you open up? I want to go outside. I'm like, there is nothing to do outside at this time of the morning. Like, everybody is asleep. You know, just, just go back to bed. And, and my boys are up early. They're busy. They want to get, uh, get going. But it's also quite tough to get them all ready for school in the morning. So three young boys... We have to leave home just after 6.30 to make it to all the schools through Joburg traffic. And, um, and so, you know, getting them dressed and then redressing them after they've spilled yogurt on themselves and doing their hair and brushing their teeth and, and, uh, and putting sunblock on and making sure they've got everything in their bags. Any parents, again, here this morning that feels my pain. And uh, so many mornings, we kind of run late. If, if something is, you know, there's been an extra mess or the boys are a little bit slow, um, uh, and, so, and so this week, uh, you know, I did it again where what I do is like half the time we just put on is just bring your shoes. I just take my shoes. I did it this week. Like I just grab my, uh, you know, my, my running shoes and I'm like, I'll put them on in the car, whatever. And in order to save time, uh, one thing that I do is, is I dress in my gym clothes. So the people at my boys' school think I'm the most dedicated fitness guy. Because every morning when I drop the boys off, I've got like a gym t-shirt and gym pants. And, uh, and my running shoes, and I'm like, yes, I'm dedicated. Everybody else is like dressed and ready for their corporate jobs, you know, their, their, their professional suits and everything. And I'm like, I'm like you. I'm just better because I go to gym first. I'm more dedicated. I'm more professional. You know, what they don't know is I don't even have socks on under those shoes. I just put them on in the car. And, um, and the reason why I dress like that is because with minimal effort, I can get back into bed when I get back home again. So, so I do that, and, and sometimes we're late. And one, week this, uh, one day this last week, uh, my boys have also developed like an incredible appetite. They could just eat nonstop. And one morning they ate leftovers from the night before. Each of them had two packets of instant oats, 
they had uh, some cereal as well, some fruit, a banana, and, and all kinds of stuff. And then just before we leave for school, they're like, Dad, we're hungry. And so I'm like, boys, we could have fed like a medium-sized village in South America at this point, you know, with all the food you guys have eaten. And so, but I'm like, okay, so I just put some cereal into a bowl uh, for each of them with no milk. And I'm like, just eat this in the car. And we get in the car. And inevitably, as you could have already guessed, on the way to the school, Leo, um, he bumps Jude. Jude messes all the Cheerios out over my floor. And so he, now he's crying because he's hungry, but the Cheerios are on the floor and, uh, and whatever. And so I'm like, okay, I'll clean it later. We get to Eli's school, and Eli's climbing over the, his brothers, saying goodbye to them, uh, getting out on the right side of the road. And, and as he gets over, there's like four Cheerios perched, like just where the door and the, and the car meet, you know, just on that little sill there. There's like four Cheerios. And I'm thinking to myself, I guess it's not so bad. It's just a few. I can chuck them away, whatever. And Eli looks at them and locks on. And with like a mighty stomp, he like crushes all four of them in one step. And if you're a parent, you've been here before. Where I look at him and I'm like, help me understand. <laughs> like, help me understand. I, I need to clean this car. Why do you want to make my life difficult? Help me. And he's like the seven-year-old getting out of school on his way to class in grade one. He's like, I have nothing for you, Dad. I just, I'm sorry. It just felt like they're the right thing to do at the time. I'm like, I just don't get it. I just don't understand. And if you have kids, how many times have you asked the question, help me understand what is going through your mind when you do these things? You know, when you, when you draw on walls or when you break stuff or when you, when you, you know, when you tie up your brother or, you know, I came, I came home one day, Eli was about four years old and his twin brothers were two. And he had, Leo had a collar on and a leash. And I come home, Eli's four, and he's walking his brother around the house. I'm like, Eli, what are you doing? And he's like, Dad, it's my puppy. This is my puppy. I'm like, it's not a puppy. It is your brother. He's like, no, Dad, this is my puppy. And so if you've been a parent, you've often looked at your kids and wondered, why would they do this? What goes through their minds? I just don't get it. And, um, and there's a place in Scripture where Paul, who was a guy that Jesus really spoke to, he was an apostle, and Jesus used him um, to write these letters to, to different churches, the letters we still read today. And Paul has one of these moments, because oftentimes in raising up and discipling people um, and helping them understand who Jesus is, he took on that role of a parent. And he takes this young church, it was, uh, you know, all of the churches back then often were led by young guys, and they, they're doing stuff. And, and, and there's, there's one place in Scripture um, in the book of Galatians, where, where, where Paul is literally like, help me understand. Like, I just don't get it. And he uses some of the strongest language that we find in the New Testament when he's writing to them. This is exactly the way, when I read it, like I have spoken as a parent to my own kids. And it's in Galatians 3, verse 1. So if you have Bibles here this morning, uh, you, can, you can take them out and you can look at Galatians 3. We're going to be here for the, uh, in this space for the morning with Galatians 3. Uh, if you don't have Bibles, don't worry. We're going to put it up on the screen. But we do encourage you to get, uh, to get some Bibles, to get a Bible. I threw mine down this morning. It made a mighty thud. Um, some of you thought Jesus was returning. It was just me dropping my Bible. Um, but just get one and get one with pages. I also have a Bible app. I read off my phone a lot. But, you know, if load shedding happens, like what happened to me last night, I was writing sermons old school last night. I was going back to like the Charles Spurgeon um, vibe, you know, with a little lantern and some, an ink pen and... and you know, just kicking it back. But, but uh, if the power goes out and you can't charge your phone and you need a word, then you're in trouble. So get some with pages, and, um, and you can go to Galatians 3. 
Galatians 3 verse 1 says, Oh foolish Galatians, exclamation mark. Like, guys, I don't get it. Like, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put a spell on you? Who has hexed you? Who has, who has warped your thinking? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Like, you know what Jesus did for you. You know what he accomplished on the cross. Help me understand who has convinced you to lose focus on what Jesus has done for you. In Galatians 3 verse 1, and I love the message Bible, Eugene Peterson, who wrote this paraphrase of the Bible across 20 years. He was really just writing it for his own church, um, and, uh, and, and it became a worldwide phenomenon because he ch- sought to uh, just get the, 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 the meaning out of the words, out of the original Greek and Hebrew. And, and so in, the, in, the, in Galatians 3 1 in the message, he says, you crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? That's exactly the question I ask my kids. And the follow-up question that they ask me is, what does senses mean? And I'm like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it's obvious you have no longer, you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. You've lost focus. We often tell people here at Anchor Church, please don't come here and try and fix yourself. It's not possible. We don't believe in self-help. We don't believe in religion. We don't believe in in life hacks. Uh, We understand that there is a problem that we have in our hearts that is bigger than what we can solve through some clever thinking, that is greater than what we can overcome. Like, how many of you are like, I'm going to be a good person? I think if you ask everybody, like, are you going to be a good person? They all say, yes, I'm going to be a good person. And maybe you've even decided to have a good week where you're going to go out you're going to have a great week. You're going to be good to people. You're not going to be mad in traffic. You're not going to kick your dog. You're going to be, you know, speak nicely to your spouse. You're going to love your kids. Um, I told a friend of mine this morning, I tell my kids to go away too often. <laughs> like, I'm like, just go away. Um, you're going to be nice to your kids. You decide that. And you're like, Monday morning, like, this is going to be a great week for me. Especially if you're a Christian, you're like, it's going to be a holy week. It's going to be a fantastic week. Jesus is going to answer all my prayers this week because I'm going to be so good. And, um, and then, like, by 8.30, you've sworn at somebody in traffic. You've kicked your dog twice. You ignored your wife. You, you, you told your kids to go away, and you've completely disappointed yourself. And you're like, and then you're left in this, like, heap of condemnation just going, I wish I could be better. All of us have that desire. So we, we all know that we should be striving towards something that's better. But what we understand is, is that we need help. So th- rather than trying to fix ourselves, we fix our eyes on Jesus who is both the author, which means he began it, and the finisher of your faith. That, to me, is great news. Because it means that I'm not in control of ultimately becoming like Jesus. My only responsibility is to look to Jesus, to fix my my eyes on him, and to allow him to transform me. So this is not behavioral modification. That's religion. Modify your behavior. You don't have to believe or behave in order to belong here at Anchor Church. We believe that you belong first. You understand the love of God first. You understand that you're welcome first. And over time, you'll believe. And over time, your, your, your behavior will change as a result of what you believe. But that's the major difference and the reason why Jesus isn't religious. And, um, and so Paul asks this question, who has bewitched you? Did somebody put a hex on you? Are you crazy? Some variations of this would be, are you nuts? Have you lost your mind? Are you kidding me? You know, parents who ask their kids, why would you do this? Um, you know, and, and, and they have no answer to that. I remember watching the movie Transformers, uh, where the one guy was using all kinds of lingo. The cop, 
um, is chatting to the guy and using all kinds of lingos, and he pauses, and he kind of looks at him, and he asks the question, are you on drugs? You know, it's like, like, like Paul would be asking the Galatians, like, are you, are you guys on drugs? Like, I mean, I just don't get where you're going to. Um, I saw a photo this week of somebody vacuuming their grass, and they're like drugs because there's no other explanation. You know, why would you vacuum your grass? Anyways, I've got a couple of other pictures that I found online that I thought were great, um, and I think that sometimes we, we do stuff like this, and theologically, doctrinally, and what we believe, and it's just like, I, what, you know, I don't know. Just go back to the previous photo. How many of you agree with me that that has to be in England? It has to be England. I don't know why, but it has to be the UK. Maybe, maybe Wales or whatever, but those guys have like proper white UK bellies, beers, and then they're floating their wiring with flip-flops. That has to be the UK. Um, go to the next one. Um, yeah, this one. There are so many jokes I could make about this one. But I've got the microphone and this is being recorded. So I'm going to refrain, but you can make them up for yourself. Uh, why would you do this? I just don't get it. Utterly foolish. You can go to the next one. Um, this one just... Yeah. I actually don't think that's a mistake. I actually think that guy's done with life. I actually think he's tried hard enough. He's failed too many times. His girlfriend left him. His milk was sour in the fridge. His cat got lost. And, uh, and, and now he's like, I'm done with life. I'm sitting on this branch and I'm sawing it off. Um, but, but when we do things doctrinally and we believe things that the scriptures are so clear is the opposite, we're like one of those. We're just like, I don't get it. Why would you believe that way? Why would you think that way? And, um, and so in, in Galatians 3, as Paul uses quite passionate language to talk to the church about what they believe, uh, from verse 2, he carries on. He says, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you, did you receive a relationship with God and fellowship with the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses, like you're going back to the Old Testament and like trying to be a Pharisee and trying to follow the, the laws of Judaism and, 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 and all of that? Did, did you receive God's presence in your life because you followed some rules? He says, of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Jesus. When the disciples went to Jesus, they said to him, Tell us what we must do to do the works of God. And he said, this is what you must do to do the work of God. Believe in him whom he sent. Our job is to believe. And God works in our lives through that. He says, did you receive the Spirit because of you, you following rules? No, you didn't. It's because you believed. How foolish can you be? Having, after starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? And that phrase there, Trying to become perfect is a great synonym phrase that I could substitute with religion. Having, having begun your, your, your race, your walk with God, not because you were good enough, but because of Jesus, the grace of Jesus that saved you, why would you now become religious? Why would you now think that it's your behavior that makes you right with God? Why would you now think that you can only pray when you've had a good week? Why would you now think that it's all up to you? You foolish Galatians, I just don't get it. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to just share a few thoughts on religion this morning. It'll hopefully, hopefully uh, help you to fix your eyes on Jesus and be encouraged. So let's just pray. Father, we just thank you this morning that we are not relating to some distant God. We're not relating to a philosophy. We're not relating to uh, a worldview or a, a way of approaching life or a made-up framework that helps us to try and make sense of it all and tries to... Uh, assign some meaning. We are speaking to a person. That you are real. That you are present. 
that your love is felt and that you came to be with us physically, that you were present with people in the, in, in the body and that even though you were the Father, that we have your, your presence here today. We just pray, God, that you would speak to every heart, something deeper than just some information and some nice words, but, but something that is life-changing and life-altering. And we just thank you, God, that you do what only you can do because you love us. And we give you all the glory for that in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen. So I believe that as a human race, we have an addiction. Like as the church, we often, we often uh, perpetuate that addiction of humanity. And that addiction is our addiction to religion. More than what we're addicted to anything else, we're addicted to religion. And when people, when I use the word religion, people think of old churches with like lots of wood and some smoke involved and, and like people wearing robes and, and, uh, and, and that's, what they, that's what they think. But, but we could be as religious here this morning uh, with, with what we have and what, what we're dressed in um, as long as religion is a system by which we are trying to save ourselves. And here's news for people that think, well, I'm not religious. I've never been religious. I don't believe in religion. What you've created in all those things you just said is your own religion because everybody believes something. If you did things and they were not connected to any internal driving force, then you literally would be crazy. Only people that are crazy would do things that are completely random. So even though we do things at times that other people would look at and go, that's random, it stems from some sort of belief that we have. And that belief, whether it's formalized, whether it's institutionalized, whether it's in a church building or a synagogue or a mosque or a, or a prayer place or whatever, let me put it this way, your club can be your church. Your, your comforts, your, your, your PlayStation, your, uh, your, the things that you spend time with, uh, your career, your, um, you know, you know, your, your social life, that's just your religion. That's just what you do to make you feel as if this is what gives me meaning. This is what gives me purpose. This is what makes me significant. And so when I say we're addicted to religion, I'm not necessarily talking about institutionalized religion. I'm talking about everything that we do in our own strength to make ourselves feel more loved, more worthy, more significant, more important. And it involves all of those things. We're addicted to this religion. We struggle to give up control. It's not necessarily hymnals and dusty songbooks or organs and choirs in purple robes. It's a spirit. It's a system. It's an approach. It's a pursuit that we do in order to pursue, uh, to save ourselves. And I remember uh, once having a, a dream. Actually, I, I uh, preached at a church. I uh, went down to um, an area on the coast of South Africa. I was invited to go and speak at this church. And, you know, God had really done something incredible in my life because I think I used to be super religious without knowing it. I used to kind of judge people that were religious, going, oh, they just don't understand, you know, what the Bible's all about, whatever, only to find out that actually I was that guy that actually didn't understand. And Jesus started to reveal more of his love and his grace to me through, through the scriptures. And, and, uh, and this was a fresh thing for me. And so I got asked to go speak at a conference and I asked to talk on the fire of God and so I went there and I preached a message called do you believe the gospel and I was like there is only one thing that's going to fire you up eternally and it's knowing what Jesus did for you on the cross and so my, my message had these three parts it was like uh, you can't just stop trying because you can't number two Jesus did he already did the work number three Jesus does it doesn't go back to you it's essentially what Paul's saying but it it remains Jesus now living through you don't live for God let God live through you let him direct your steps and, um, and so I preached that message, 
and it wasn't the, it wasn't the right crowd for us. It, I was coming out of left field for these guys. I might have come there and, and like picked up like the Hindu Sanskrit and started reading passages because they closed down. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I've only had this once or twice um, because normally people enjoy my speaking. Am I right? No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that. Um, but like these people, they, they folded their arms, they crossed their legs, they, they started whispering to each other. And what happens with me, just in case you ever thought about doing that, the more that happens, the longer I preach because I'm like, they don't get it. They don't get it. I've got to help them understand more. I preached for like an hour and a half, okay? I never preached for an hour and a half because I was like, they just don't get it. And um, I left. It was cold shoulder all the way. Um, never heard from them again. Uh, you know, they, they criticized my preaching publicly. There was a lot of stuff that happened. They had to do corrective preaching afterwards because I was like, do you believe the gospel? Then they had to come and correct everything. I, I was so, you know, blasphemous to teach the people. And, um, and I remember having a nightmare dream slash nightmare two nights ago uh, two nights later where I dreamt that I was going back to that church again and I arrive and as I arrive um, they take me into a room and, and it's this like really pumping really vibey church lots of young people and um, and so that they take me into that, that I mean I'm saying that's what the church is like not in the dream but but in this space and and so I walk in but when I walk in it literally looks just like an old kind of what we would call religious looking church a lot of wood a big pew, you know, the ones that the like, pastors climb up into and all these wooden benches in like a semicircle around. I'm like, what is this place? I thought that this was the church I was coming to preach at. And so they walk me through and I hear music and they walk me through like, like a passage that went in a semicircle around and there's a door. And when I go through the door, there's lights, people are jumping. I'm like, okay, this is more what I thought I was coming to. And so I'm like, okay, cool. So you guys are just sharing the building, great. And I get up and I preach and I start preaching in this dream. And as I preach, there's a concrete pillar that appears right in the middle of like the front of the stage, just this massive pillar, maybe the width of these chairs in my dream. And so when I go to this side to speak to the people, I lose the people on that side. And I begin feeling the frustration of like, they're not hearing me. They're not hearing this message. And I'll, I'll go over to this side and, and I'll preach to them, but they're not interested anymore. They're talking. I've completed, I'll go back. And it was just this struggle. And at one point I came around the pillar again and everybody was gone. Everybody was gone. They completely abandoned me. And then I looked over to the door where we came through and all the leaders had just gone and stood just on the other side of that door. So they were in this church that looks really vibey and fun and liberated, but actually they were still worshiping religion. There was a mindset of religion where we have to do the work in order for God to accept us. And in that instant, everybody's gone. And, um, and the dream continues for there. I end up asking somebody, I find somebody in an office and everybody's reluctant and I end up getting taken back to my car and, and, uh, and, and at the last moment this person turns around and they have tears in their eyes and I say, all I ever wanted to do was help people connect with Jesus. And that was kind of the end of the, of the dream. But that to me is such a clear definition of, of, what, of what happened. It was like God showing me what happened. When you have a religious heart, you have a hardened heart. A religious heart isn't soft to hearing the grace of God because it has found its pride in what it has done. It's like me going to a guy who has spent his entire life on the stock market making a fortune and going to him at the end of his life and saying, sorry, bud, that was actually all for play. This was monopoly money, dude. None of that actually mattered. That guy is going to be angry. He, he's going to try and hurt me. He will reject what I say. And so when people have built up themselves and feel good about themselves, even if it's a facade, because of how religious they are, and you go to them and say, hey, actually, it's not about that. It's 
It's actually grace. Free gift. Everybody gets the same. Everybody gets the same opportunity to connect with Jesus. They're like, you've you got to be kidding me. That cannot be true. And Jesus actually tells stories like this where a guy in, hires some workers and some guys work from 8 a.m. in the morning and then, and then he hires a couple more at 5 p.m. and they only work till 6. So some guys work seven hours and the others, or eight hours, nine hours. I, I'm not good at math. That's why I became a preacher. So, so like they work a whole day and then, and then this, these other guys, they work one hour and the master gives the same wages to everybody. And obviously the guys that got hired in the morning are like, that's unfair. And that's why we say grace isn't fair. It doesn't look at what you've done. It looks at what Jesus has done. And so that's really a picture for me of, of religion that we have in this world, this attempt to fix ourselves. And, you know, all of the world's philosophies of living are based on this. Um, and, 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 and people have, have turned Instagram into a religion. Instagram is the place that they connect and, and, and find meaning and value in life. Like if I get enough likes, this is a clue. Like, if you post something and the likes just come rolling in, baby, how good do you feel? I mean, you're looking over your phone like, sorry, guys, I'm too busy counting my likes to go back and look at my phone. I'll count them later when it's like at 1,000 or whatever. Like, can you just simplify it for me? Can you just make it like 1K likes, you know, whatever? Because um, it's too much to look at, you know? Um, and if you post something, you're like, this matters to me. You post and nobody likes it. You're like, wow, I don't know if I matter anymore. You know, it's like we, 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 we look to those things for significance. And we hope to be saved from meaninglessness and disillusionment and, and boredom. But in Colossians 2 verse 20, Paul again writes to this young church and he says, Therefore, if you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Now, when people told me, you know, because as Christians we sometimes talk about, like, we don't want to live like the world. And then what we think about that is, like, dancing on tables, and that, by the way, is an example I've used since I was a youth boss, like 20 years, I've been like dancing on tables. I don't know why dancing on tables is worldly, but I'm going to go with it anyways. And so, you know, just like giving yourself away to things that, are, that aren't right, that aren't right in God's eyes, and we're like, that's what it means to be worldly. But actually what this scripture says is it's about submitting yourself to regulations, to religion, to structures, to, to formats, to formulas. Here are the regulations. What are the regulations? Don't get drunk. Don't have a good time. You know, don't sleep around. Are those the regulations? No, it says that you've actually told yourself, do, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. In other words, this is not God's gospel. This is religion that people made up. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. There it is. It appears to be wise. If you meet a guy and he's like, sorry, I abstain, sorry, I live a clean life, sorry, you know, it's like, wow, that looks so wise, so noble, so, so wonderful. It's like, it's self-imposed religion. It has the appearance of wisdom. It's false humility and neglect of the body. Another translation says severe bodily discipline, which is why I don't want to be guilty of this scripture, so when I drop my boys off at school, I go back to bed. I don't go to gym, Okay. He says these things, uh, sorry, uh, neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And once the amplified version says, but instead they indulge the flesh. So if you want to be super unholy, try to act holy. Try to live holy in your own strength. That's the most unholy you can be. And I know it's, it sounds contradictory. I know it sounds like a conundrum. But essentially, as long as you're trying to do it in your own strength, it's just self-righteousness. 
And self-righteousness is worse than unrighteousness, right? Because you don't know that you're unrighteous, but you're more unrighteous than what you, what you can understand. And so he comes against it. He says, this is just self-imposed religion. Robert uh, Capon, who's like one, um, one of my favorite authors, um, he wrote this. He says, I think good preachers should be like bad kids. They ought to be naughty enough to tiptoe up on dozing congregations, steal their bottles of religion pills, and flush them all down the drain. The church, by and large, has drugged itself, a little bit like I did this morning, into thinking that proper human behavior is the key to a relationship with God. What preachers need to do is force it, the church, to go cold turkey with nothing but the word of the cross and then be brave enough to stick around while the congregation goes through the inevitable withdrawal symptoms. We've drugged ourselves on religion. And that's why Paul asked the question, are you guys on drugs? Who's bewitched you? Who's put a spell on you? Galatians 3 verse 1 says, for the meaning of Jesus Christ's death, we read this, it says, was made clear to you as though you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. And what Paul's saying is like, You've, it was so clearly explained. Again, that sounds like a parent. Like I told you exactly, what did I tell you? What did I tell you to do? Like my boy did something this week. I told him not to do something. He did it. It ended up in the result that I warned him, forewarned him would happen. I looked at him and I said, do you see me? I know stuff. Like I know stuff. I knew that was going to happen. So next time I tell you, just listen. Like, okay, Dad, next time. Same thing, you know. But Paul is essentially saying, you saw a picture of what Jesus did for you on the cross. You've seen it as if you were standing there. We've preached it. We've shared it. We've, we've revealed it. As if you were standing there in front of it yourself looking. There is Jesus. He died for me. So why would you go back to self-imposed religion? Why would you go back to... Um, trying to do it in your own strength. The cross is the declaration that God saved us without us doing a single religious thing in order to be saved. It is the greatest anti-religious statement that has ever been made. I, I died that you don't need to enroll yourself in those things. In the cross we see and hear God's declaration that we cannot and will not be saved by our own efforts. So I want to tell you this morning, you cannot be good enough, you cannot be disciplined enough, you cannot be devoted enough to make yourself better or to make yourself right with God. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to church, you know, read the Bible, prayed with people, you still cannot save yourself. And that is why the cross, which is actually a very weird thing, people wear a cross around their necks, the cross is ultimately an, an instrument of torture and death. But the reason why that became hope to us is because Jesus was crucified and he died there so that we would be set free from religion, so that we would be set free from sin, so we would be set free from unrighteousness, so that we could walk with God. And that is why the cross is the symbol of God's grace, the symbol of a God who saves us because of his love. Ephesians 2.8, and I mean the whole Bible tells us this, but Ephesians 2.8 makes it very clear where it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're saved. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Like, this is not about us bragging, like, I'm saved because I'm so good. Like, you know, there's some people that believe that only a certain number of people get into heaven and that after, um, you know, they've, they've done enough 
to be one of that certain number to get into heaven. But I'm like, if that's your religion, why go door to door with that? I mean, that you're literally getting the odds against you. Like, you're doing yourself harm. But the Bible tells us that there are multitudes that cannot be counted before the throne of every tribe and every tongue and every nation because it's not good people that go to heaven. If it was good people that go to heaven, none of us would go. It's forgiven people. It's forgiven people. And the gospel, as I've always said, is not about taking bad people and making them good. It's about taking dead people who don't have a relationship with God, who don't have that meaning, who don't have that presence, who don't have that purpose, and, and making them alive. It's life to us. Romans 5.15 says, But the free gift of God is not like the offense when we sinned. For if by one man's offense many died, as Adam sinned and sin became our nature, that's what it's saying. Like All of us are sinners. We're born with it. That's why I don't need to send my kids to sin seminars to teach them how to be really naughty. They just do that by themselves. Because we're all selfish. We're all greedy. Um, we do it by nature. So we have that nature. But Ephesians 5.15 says, the free gift is not like the offense. By one man's offense many died. Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So wherever sin has abounded, the gift of God's grace has abounded to many, many more. So the message of the church and the message of our church, and this is a message that I'm really passionate about. I, it's really all, for my heart, is really to help people understand this, that it's not about religion, it's about God's grace. It's a free call to sinners everywhere. Jesus was a friend of sinners. His clashes were with the Pharisees, the religious people. But he was a friend of sinners. When they found him, he was having lunch with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the, and the gangsters, the mobsters, the guys that were, that were, that were doing Rome's bidding, the, everybody that was despised and hated and rejected. Those were the ones that Jesus came. And when the Pharisees confronted him and they said, you know, why are you, you call yourself a holy man, but look at the people you hang out with. And he said, it is the, who, who needs the doctor? Who needs saving? Is it the healthy or the sick? I've come to save people's lives. Jesus came to, to save us. We all needed that. Tim Keller says, he says, it says, religion says, this is what you have to do in order to connect with God forever. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel says, this is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. Religion is advice. Christianity is essentially news. It's telling you something that has been done for you, not something that you have to do. What we need in the church is not more advice about how to be better, not another five keys or another ten steps or another three revelations, but, but one revelation, a greater revelation of the cross, a greater revelation of what Jesus has done for us. We need to understand what it really means to give our lives to Jesus, to trust in Him, and we need to come back to our faith in a God who saves the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We need to take the needle of religion out of our arms. We need to throw away the cocaine of self-righteousness and flush the pills of principles down the drain. And instead of all of that rubbish, we just need to focus on the cross. Your life has been paid for. There is no more price to pay for your salvation. It's been done. Nothing in all of history has delivered more people. 
Nothing has brought more rebels home. Nothing has turned as many sinners around. Nothing has the power to bring those. The scripture says that through the gospel, through God's grace, those that once stood afar off. I get the sense of people that stand far away and they're like, I wonder if I could go there. I wonder if I'd be welcome. I wonder if God would receive me. The Bible says that through the gospel, through the grace of God, those who once stood afar off have been brought near. It's the love of God. When the prodigal son comes home, having literally wasted his inheritance on prostitutes, and he goes back to his father, wondering what his father will say, and he's rehearsing his speech, the scripture says that when his father saw him coming from afar off, he didn't wait for him to come. He ran out to meet him, and when he met him, he flung his arms around his neck and kissed him. And that word in the, in, in the Greek, kissed, is kissed him much, kissed him repeatedly. And I love to think that every time the son was going to bring up another excuse about why he's not deserving, the father would just plant another kiss on his face and say, you're welcome, you're welcome, you're accepted, you're forgiven, you're loved. That is the message of the church. That is the message of our church. That is the message of the Bible. You have been accepted. You've been embraced. You've been kissed. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you're welcome in the Father's arms. And so the cross is and should be our only addiction because it is our only hope and our only salvation. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been to. It doesn't matter how you may have failed. I want to tell you today that there is grace for you. Grace that far outweighs. We can never outsin God's grace. It is grace that turns us around, and, and there is grace for you today. What Jesus did for you on the cross, he said it would be enough, and it is enough. That's the picture of the cross. Galatians 3, verse 3, my final scripture for the morning. It says, how foolish can you be after starting your Christian lives in the Spirit why are you now trying to become perfect by your own effort? You see, a lot of us as Christians, we start off the journey by trusting in the cross. But as time goes on, we think that we have to graduate from grace, graduate from the cross. Well, I, I used to believe that by God's grace I'm saved, whatever, but now, now I'm, I'm, I've, got to do it, I've got to rely less on Jesus and more on me. The journey of maturity in Christianity isn't becoming less and less dependent on Jesus. It's becoming more and more dependent. And so even though I mature, I grow, I grow emotionally and, and physically and psychologically, I'm learning and all those kinds of things. It, when it comes to my faith, I become more and more like a child. Not childish, but childlike in how I believe. In how I believe. And so you, can, can, you don't have to figure it out is what I'm telling you this morning. It's a simple belief that you say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in what he did, I trust in the cross. And so Paul is saying, please, church, Jesus isn't religious. Please don't be religious. Please don't think you're going to save yourself. He says, he says, now trying to become perfect. What the scriptures tell us is that it is Jesus, as we behold him, that transforms us. And that change, that being perfect, it's not just a mystical, intangible thing. It's real change in real people's lives. And I've seen this. I've seen people that struggle with every kind of issue, that have all kinds of, of, of baggage from their past, that, that struggle to break free from certain things in their lives, and that 
in general seem to not get it. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand why church is supposed to be a thing and, and whatever. And then something happens where the eyes of their heart, your, your heart has an ability to see and perceive your spirit, become enlightened, and you get a picture and understanding of what Jesus did for you. And it's when that happens that you see real change in people's lives. So we're not here to try and tell you, hey, you know, just try a little harder. Just try a little, just be a bit, this week go be a bit better. We would rather have you come to that place where you say, I just can't do it. Because the moment you realize you can't do it is where your religion stops, where your faith begins, and where you allow Jesus to come and apply what he has done to your life. And then there's a journey of us becoming everything that Jesus intended for us to be. Amen? We want to go on that journey together. That's what we're about as a church. We want to help you take those next steps. We want to help you move forward, and, uh, and we're going to do that. So let's just go ahead and pray together this morning.